Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. Insider's Guide to Energy, ETRM mini-series, brought to you by Fedectus, where post-trading matters, and falls in independent management and consulting beauty, creating impacts for clients and markets. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy ETRM miniseries. Today, we are fortunate to have with us John Fox from Topaz. John, welcome to the miniseries. Hi there, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, I think it makes sense to start. Who's Topaz? Uh, well, Topaz is a, um, a relatively modern company. We're uh, based in the uh, cross-commodities uh, trading risk space, uh, mainly looking after people who are trying to get sort of real-time cross-commodity risk and Perhaps have an interest, you know, in kind of physical assets or other structured derivatives pricing as part of a, you know, um, sort of composite view of their risk exposure. Well, as I've done throughout this whole mini series, I'd like to start by asking our guests what what they see is happening in the ETRM or the risk management space, and what's driving them. So I started this series with Martin because we saw a lot of startups, we saw a lot of activity, and a lot of change taking place. So from your vantage point, what's happening today in the risk management space? Yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, a change going on at the moment. I think that uh, certainly risk management is quite a hot topic at the moment, particularly. I think obviously markets have been very volatile recently. I think there's been a lot of focus on it. Certainly, there's still a lot of people out there who are, you know, still using spreadsheets and uh, you know don't have the capabilities they need for their existing risk systems. And so, I think it's been an area of, of uh, focus me recently. And so, area of focus, but. Focus on what? So risk management's been around for a long time. So what's keeping people up at night? What What are you seeing the industry demand that didn't exist in, in the past? Well, I think there's a lot more focus on kind of real-time capabilities. So, you know, traditionally you've had a lot of end-of-day systems. People have been doing overnight or batch valuations. And that doesn't really give them a view on the market intraday, especially when they've got exposed, which are dynamic and are changing with, you know, underlying prices. And particularly that's been, you know, relevant recently. So, John, would you say that this uh, demand of real-time Pricing risk management has certainly or strongly increased since, let's say, this geopolitical um, development and the market price is going through the roof. Yeah, I think it has. And I think, you know, people are also starting to look at optionality for things which perhaps wasn't as exciting in times when falls were lower. And they've taken a close look at obviously even prior to recent events, we've had a lot of activity in parent gas markets in Europe, certainly last year. I think that's been a bit of a wake-up call and people are you know, looking at paying more attention to structures which perhaps weren't as interesting as they were previously, which now are a lot more risky than perhaps they were. Okay, yeah, that sounds very reasonable. But um, I think the, the one of the main driving factors is the high, high volatility for increasing demand of um, pricing or real-time pricing risk management. So my question to you, and I think that's a very um, interesting one, is how would it develop in the future? Do you think that volatility will um, stay up high? Maybe not as high as it was in the past weeks, but do you think we will reach, in general, a high level of volatility in the next months and years? Uh, I think we are set for volatility to remain high for the foreseeable future. I think, obviously, there's a lot of talk around you know, rebalancing supplies of energy, perhaps away from you know Russia. 
and uh, you know consummate uh, increases perhaps in demand for things like copper for electrification. I think there's going to be a bit of a change, you know, in terms of you know what what's in demand and how much and where we're getting it from, and with that will become you know the uh, imbalances, and with that will come volatility. Okay, that sounds <laughs> very much reasonable from my point of view as well. But maybe let's go back one step since we are, I think, uh, driving already in some uh, more concrete areas, but very interesting areas. But nevertheless, maybe for our audience, uh, it would be very helpful also for us to, to shape a bit better the, the product and the services that uh, Topos is providing, because as per my understanding, it's not a classical ETM system. You mentioned already risk management pricing, real time behind it. This is the focus, but maybe you can elaborate also a bit more on uh, on the level of the trading architecture. So how is your or who is using your um, risk management and pricing solutions usually and to what systems is it usually connecting? So to get a bit of a um, high level view on it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've tried to design the system to, you know, look after essentially trades and risk management in the front office. So what we've seen, you know, quite often is, is that, you know, CTMs are put in. Uh, to companies, they're usually led by the perhaps back office typically. You know, they may provide a system of record. They'll, you know, do sort of crud type activity quite well, keeping track of things, you know, sort of life cycle and process related stuff. But typically what they're not so good at is sort of analytics, you know, pricing, um, you know, real-time behavior and things like that. So, you know, often we find traders are still, you know, using spreadsheets, still running their models independently. There's a lot of risk associated with this sort of off-system you know, kind of uh, work with models because it means that there's not visibility perhaps elsewhere in the company, it means there's not necessarily consistency. The risk guys might not have, you know, the same view as, as the traders are looking at or might not even be aware of the risk. So I think, you know, that's an area which uh, a lot of people still have a problem with, especially for, you know, uh, any assets or underlines which are, you know, more complex than, say, very vanilla things like linear instruments. And so, you know, that's an area we see um, as, as, you know, which we're trying to focus on. And so typically that would be perhaps, you know, as an augmentation to an existing system because we've kind of gone after that horizontal layer where it's cross commodities but at the front as opposed to sort of a deep stack all the way to the back. Okay. And uh, since you mentioned cross commodity, I mean, the, the commodities can be quite different and require different pricing and risk management models. So, so what kind of commodities are your, let's say, sweet spot? And which one can you cope in general with? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, The main ones we can cope with really are um, oil and metals and, and gas and power. Those will be our areas of focus. Um, we also have, you know, functionality, but quite general around ags and you know, some freight, obviously, as well, well scale, that kind of thing. So, but, the, but those are our, our core areas, I think. So, you know, cargo-based optionality on oil and metals um, and, you know, structural derivatives around them. And as you say, you know, the markets are different. So, you know, you've got different characteristics, like, you know, the LME market structure, for example, or for... Um, power and gas flow markets, you know, shaping, things like that. So, yeah, what we've tried to do is, you know, take into account those, you know, characteristics of different markets in such a way which, you know, the idiosyncrasies they have, but then provide sort of common, you know, um, reporting functionality on top of those. Talking about where you are today, just just curious, stepping back even a little bit to the beginning here. So you're the founder of this company. What's different now from what form caused you to start the company? What What trends? Because you're not brand new. You're not this year. You've been out for a little while. So what's changed from your initial mission statement to today? Um, so I think, you know, when we started the company, what we were trying to do was to, you know, build out a solution in that front office space. I think there's not a lot out there. There's people sort of going after, you know, there's perhaps point solutions for specific markets, you know, for, you know, specific underlines and, and, and different types of instruments. But for 
a cross-cutting system which is in real time at the front, uh, you know, in front office, um, there wasn't really anything out there we could we could see. And so um, that was really, you know, why we went into that market. There's a lot of bigger systems have been around for longer with older technology, which really didn't offer the kind of slick, real-time, you know, flexible interface that we've tried to offer. And so that was kind of our core, core mission initially. Uh, so real-time, uh, I think, goes very well in hand with a development that is very predominant in the market now, renewables. I think uh, that increases the speed drastically that uh, an operational or that an organization needs to uh, perform in trading. And uh, I'm curious to hear what impact renewables and the speed, let's call it that way, that comes with them, has on your solutions and how you maybe um, plan to to change uh, certain functionality. Yeah, well, right now in terms of throughput, you know, we have a pretty good throughput. We're an event-based system, you know, we're distributed. So, you know, we're very, uh, I think in terms of, Handling large workloads, you know, lots of trading grass, you know, distributed computing. I think we, you know, we do a good job of that. Um, we don't have a lot of specific renewables functionality right now um, in terms of, you know, structures in that market, although we do have general power structures. But, uh, you know, certainly we have um, plans in that regard. And I think in terms of things like PPAs with sort of, you know, optionality embedded in them and requiring sort of simulation, like that, I think we're kind of well-placed to, to cover that kind of stuff. We've done a lot of work on you know, quite generalized simulation engines, you know, with Monte Carlo, long style Schwartz, that kind of thing, um, to, you know, distribute across the cluster. So a lot of the work we've done is providing that sort of platform to, uh, you know, to handle that kind of computation. And then as specific use cases come along, we can leverage, you know, the platform we built to, to handle those use cases. So you mentioned platform is something that um, comes along with your product. Uh, for me, platform comes with, on the one hand, the, the capability that, a larger um, end user group can work on it, but also being able to write own business functionality if needed and deploy it on um, on the solution, and uh, yeah, be more flexible, scalable as uh, typical monolithic um, solutions. So maybe you can explain a bit in your uh, in that context uh, what your platform solution provides. Yeah, so in terms of platform solution at the moment, uh, you know, it's an internal platform for us, as in we can uh, you know, build our own components very quickly for customers on top of them. But a project we're working on at the moment and we hope to deliver in the next couple of months is a solution whereby we can extend the system with Python models. So, you know, we're trying to find the balance between, you know, um, as you mentioned, you know, you have closed systems and, you know, people want to extend them and they want to have flexibility around that. But on the flip side, you don't necessarily want to make it completely open. So then you have issues managing your code base. You know, lots of you need a large team of developers. You know, things get out of control very quickly, potentially. So, you know, what we're trying to find is that sweet spot whereby, you know, you have control to, you know, develop extension points and perhaps models in this case for us, um, where you don't, you know, where it's not a total free fall, where it's sort of well-defined and there's clear interfaces you implement and things like that. And so, you know, in that case, you'd be able to, create Python models, you'll be able to, you know, maintain them yourself, you'll be able to have them in our system now. Our system is event-based, it's all versioned, so those models will be versioned as well, because if you go back in time, you kind of want to use the old version of the code, for example. And the idea is, is that, you know, that would leverage our, you know, distributed computing platform internally, whereby, you know, you'd be able to spread those models out, compute them across the cluster, and then you'd be able to utilize that as part of any other, you know, risk reporting evaluation you were doing. So we've already, you know, got a prototype for that work internally with some of our own Python models. Um, you know, the next step, of course, is to expose that to the end users so they can maintain their own. 
and they can kind of prototype and build their own models and then distribute those and package them as part of our system for, for utilization reporting. Okay. So to, to summarize, as understood, um, or if understood correctly, the, the client as of now cannot yet um, build own code and deploy it, but he instead has to hand over um, Python models or code to, 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 to your team because you're fully doing the, the operations of uh, the platform, which means also the CICDs of the uh, continuous integration of new code. Well, no, right now we're, uh, we're prototyping the Python part. Our existing models are all written in Scala, which is the language we use for our platform. Um, so yeah. what we're doing is we expose, we're going to expose that for external developers to be able to put their own models in and you know provide their own um, source code, which they can manage themselves without any interaction with us to deploy into the cluster for computation. Okay, understood, thanks. Okay, then moving maybe one step back to the topic that we uh, talked about before, renewables. Um, so I think um, beside PPAs, there's also um, the CO2 management or management of certificates. So how does that currently uh, drive maybe the, the development of your solution and how do you see it uh, from a business perspective, um, is it something in the future that will be very important still? Um, yeah, I think it will. I mean, for us, you know, we support, uh, you know, kind of uh, emissions markets in the sense that they form part of structures. For example, let's say you've got a clean sparks grid or something like that. Clearly, you have to model emissions prices, and that's a component of it. Um, right now, we're not involved in the sort of accounting part and the more back office parts of it, you know. Uh, so that's, um, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier on the call, we know we're sort of front office and risk. So, Certainly that kind of risk arises as part of, as part of the structures we see, and that's something we model. Okay, understand. And uh, since you mentioned our clean spark spread, uh, I think it was so. Um, and also you mentioned before some complex uh, structures. So what kind of complexity is available in terms of uh, tradable products? And what if a user wants to have a new structure available in terms of pricing and risk management um, capabilities. Do you provide those new um, types of products? Uh, how, how does the development cycle work? Yeah, well, it's uh, we, but, you know, either currently it will be us, yes, but in the future, as I mentioned, with the Python API and mm. uh, people will be able Right. But it's very common that we'll do an engagement with the customer and then we'll, you know, as part of that, we'll commit to producing, you know, some sort of pricing structure on top of, uh, you know, our existing platform. So, for example, actually, we're just at the moment about to start a project doing VPPs, you know, doing a, a customer has some gas peakers, you know, and uh, they're looking at uh, managing the kind of vaguer exposure of those things over, say, a six month window. So, you know, in that case, we're utilizing obviously all the components we already have in our system and we're building kind of a Pika model on top of that to support their portfolio. Okay, understand. And um, maybe a bit of a shift in, 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 in topic, but what I see sometimes, especially with bigger um, plays in the market, is that they might have more than one ETM solution for different markets um, where they do their P&L measurement uh, potentially inside the ETM system. But we all know that the P&L um, measurement or doing the, the end of day evaluation is the basis for risk management as well, deriving Greeks and, and other risk relevant um, measures. Um, so what I see as a challenge is that you have several ETMs 
with uh, several ways of measuring uh, BNL, and then it gets tricky to do a central risk management in terms of finding what is um, the risk factors across books, across uh, commodities, across markets. Is that something you come across as well sometimes? And um, if yes, what do you advise clients if, if, if they have such a situation? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. So, you know, we've come across a scenario where you're trying to integrate with, say, you know, uh, an existing CTRM, obviously, as part of, you know, our deployment pattern, typically. And one of the things you always seek to do is try and, you know, reconcile with it and make sure you're confident that you sort of captured the essence of, you know, what trade information is in there and you can value it in a consistent way. Now, you know, a lot of systems, you know, there's sort of a single way to value things, perhaps, or, you know, system-level configurability. What we've tried to do is expose lots of sort of calculation preferences, whether that's to do with things like, you know, curve interpolation, you know, what, what kind of how to deal with all, what kind of models to use for options pricing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we've wrapped those up in a thing we call a calculation profile. And often what people wind up doing is sort of using one of those to mirror the behavior of, you know, let's say an existing target system. So let's say they've got a handful of internal systems, you know, they might have a calculation profile in our system, which mirrors the calculation options of that particular system, which allows kind of reconciliation. So thereby you can sort of ensure that the sort of calculation choices now its handle is, is in line with it. That's obviously assuming we've integrated that system to extract information from it. And thereby you can consolidate it. You can sort of see, you know, views of the trade you've got in our central system, but, you know, with various different calculation profiles. And indeed, you can pick your own common profile. For example, if you're a risk person, you probably want to have a single profile where all trades, regardless of, you know, source system are treated, you know, in, in the same way. Okay, but that means uh, you really need to think well about uh, how to integrate your solution into an existing um, system landscape of um, of a client, because you might need data from different sources and systems. Yes, I mean certainly that's uh, you know you need to integrate to get data from mm -hmm. other systems. But typically, that's going to be a, a much simpler process than, for example, you know replacing an entire system. You know, so, you know, it's much mm. easier for us to extract information out of existing systems, which already is seen as, you know, a source of truth. I mean, you know, obviously you should have at least one source of truth within the company somewhere with, you know, whether that's for trading information or market data or whatever. So, you know, we would typically either integrate with that. In some cases, it might be that source of truth. For example, if you hooked up to exchange, maybe. But, um, you know, uh, often we'd be sitting on top of the source of truth, extracting information for that and providing, you know, advanced analytics and reporting services on top of that. Okay. And uh, along this integration process, uh, do you usually um, support the client in a way that you might take over the full integration journey? So building interfaces and before that already defining a target architectural design? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we work with customers to, you know, provide those integration services. I mean, we have a, a sort of internal tool we call Topaz Connect, which is kind of like an open source, you know, integration engine, which, you know, um, admits adapters where you can sort of link into target systems, transform stuff into a sort of common domain model, and then, you know, push that into our system, probably with gRPC or something. And, uh, you know, that's kind of something we supply as part of that. But we certainly engage with the customers on what that integration might look like. Absolutely. Okay. It sounds like a modern API-based architecture for making sure that the integration can work uh, as seamless as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that would bring up um, ecosystem kind of thoughts. So you've you've got a connector, you can play nicely with, you know, you, you already talked about bringing exchange data in and you've talked about other ETRMs. 
what's in your ecosystem today or what's your approach to ecosystem and partners? Um, well, currently, like I say, we've generally gone into existing trading companies to work on top of their, um, you know, whatever CTRMs or internal systems they already have. Right now, we don't really, you know, have um, much in the way of sort of an ecosystem of partners. We're not trying to sell ourselves like a full-blown solution um, to, you know, from front to back. So we're typically looking at uh, use cases where either we can supply everything that's needed for, say, a derivatives organization, which is, you know, changing exchange rate derivatives, or, you know, somebody who has an existing kind of in-house implementation but doesn't want to, you know, break the bank and have to tear out everything and start with a whole brand new approach. So that's kind of where we sort of see ourselves. But I think over time, you know, we would look to sort of partner with, you know, additional um, people in the industry to try and perhaps build up a sort of, you know, pre-configured portfolio, if you like, and offer that to the market. Actually, there's a couple of people we're talking to right now about that kind of partnership. Um, but uh, I think that's probably where it'll go in the longer term. But at the moment, we're sort of looking at some of the perhaps well-known larger uh, legacy vendors, let's say, um, sitting on top of them perhaps to extract information to you know, provide our reporting layer with the customer. Got it. And do you provide some standard out of the box interfaces to, uh, as you call them, the, the the bigger legacy vendors? Um, we do have sort of internal kind of uh, adapters which we've developed, and obviously, I think you know some of these systems are very big. So over time, of course, different people have different requirements. So I'm not going to say that you know we have sort of you know 100 support for the entire scope of, of some of these systems, mm. but certainly it's a great starting place, of course. You know, and of course, and also a lot of individual companies will customize systems or otherwise extend them in ways which aren't necessarily consistent. So there's probably going to be a little bit of work to be done depending on what the implementation looks like. But uh, certainly, I'd say a good chunk of the work is already done for some of these systems. Yeah. Okay, understood. Maybe shifting a bit the um, the topic then to uh, let's uh, call it cloudification. That is also a process very. Um, ongoing and demanded um, so to move more and more applications into cloud-based technology. So uh, what is your approach towards cloud? Are you providing a cloud-native solution or are you coming from a more legacy environment and now moving um, your solution into the cloud? No, on the contrary, a very cloud-native, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a recent modern platform, so... Obviously, we're lucky in the modern world to, you know, have uh, things like Docker and Kubernetes kicking around. And, um, you know, for our system, we've developed uh, it to be distributed in cluster-based and containerized. Um, we're pretty um, cloud agnostic in the sense that, you know, we really try and work in a reasonably vanilla Kubes cluster. So, you know, our implementation approach, you know, in terms of deployment is really up to the customer. We're not sort of going to force your hand to go full SaaS. You can course and we can manage it for you but some customers uh, insist on it being on premises they don't like the data leave the building so in that case we can also support you know, internal clusters perhaps you know um, running on vmware or something like that so you know we're, we're pretty agnostic in fact quite a common pattern actually is that you know we do deploy it on a cloud deployment but it's the customer's cloud so it's you know it's their account their subscription but you know we just manage and deploy and manage it for them so that means that they don't get the friction of having to deal with kind of internal teams for maintenance or support or anything like that. But, uh, you know, it's their systems, their hardware, their data. So you, you say a lot that um, in your vernacular, you're saying we deploy and we work with our customers. So are our customers using you mostly for services, professional services to do this? Or are some of them actually able to take your solution and just go and deploy on their own based on the toolbox that you give them? 
I mean, you did talk about the connector being pretty easy as well. So in all fairness, you gave kind of both samples, but what's your typical model? Uh, so far, you know, we've typically uh, done it. Um, we, we provide those, those services for our customers. Um, I think that, you know, uh, actually the new customers we're signing up uh, soon are interested in doing it all themselves. So we probably support them in that process as required, but I think it should be straightforward enough with our APIs for them to do it. Um, I think it very much depends on, on what they're trying to achieve and sort of what the breadth of it is. You know, if there's uh, lots of new areas, perhaps some new development on our part, then that might require, you know, a deeper engagement. But otherwise, if it's reasonably vanilla, then it should be straightforward to, you know, with our existing APIs. And then with your Python ecosystem, your, I don't know if it's like an SDK or if it's a, a kit that you're providing. You, you talked about, you know, writing apps in, in Python and then being able to use them. So I know it's a work in progress. It's, it's, it's you know, ship leaving the dock type of thing. Um, how does that work then? Is there a sandbox that they go build these in and play with? Or w- what's the journey from from writing this to control and to make sure it works well in your ecosystem? What, what are all the steps that go to deploying a Python app on your app, on your system? Yeah, well, obviously, as you say, this is still work in progress, but currently what our, our vision looks like is is the following. So obviously, you know, one of the benefits we want people to get is to have everything work seamlessly within our existing computation platform. So you know, they, if they write their Python code, they obviously want it to be distributed in the cluster and to be, you know, um, parallelized along with everything else. So I think what we're looking at is a model whereby we have sort of, you know, a Python um, library locally. So, um, you know, something which they could deploy on their on their desktops. They'd be able to develop against that. Um, and there'd be uh, a method whereby they could call into the cluster, for example, to extract things like market data and other information they would need for trade valuation. And then they'd be able to deploy that and... Uh, you know, obviously, we already have a very good system for version controlling code, and it's called Git. So uh, we'd use that um, and uh, have Git tags, for example, which they could then reflect in the calculation profile I referred to earlier. You could sort of say, well, I want to use, you know, my custom model XYZ, um, and I want to use, you know, tag, you know, the tag name for this. And the idea would be that that's something could be deployed in the cluster. That's something that, you know, cluster nodes could then compute and that our Scala JVMs could then invoke and then uh, execute on the cluster nodes and distribute in that way. So that would give them the kind of in you know, a high quality sort of you know local Python experience, perhaps with you know PyCharm or something like that, and then uh, they can deploy that um, in a way they'd be familiar with with Git, for example, and then they can refer to that in the cluster and test it. Okay, sounds pretty much like uh, what an in- industry standard as well. Um, but what I'm wondering in that context, and I'm sure you probably have thought about that, is um, how you're planning to make sure that deployment of customers does not break existing code. Yes, well, that's, you know, obviously that requires testing. One of the things, obviously, we have to have is ensure that APIs are conformed to and they have to be versioned. So I think, that, you know, if there's uh, breaking changes to APIs, of course, what we'll have to do is provide compatibility of, of versioning those APIs as we move through time. So initially, I think, you know, we'll have our initial set of APIs. Clearly, we need to have structures which support, you know, what does the instrument look like, which I'm trying to value. And also, we need to be able to call back in the system to find out things, you know, market-related information, which, again, is versioned. So, you know, we can start that early. And over time, as that evolves, we'll need to, you know, provide compatibility for those versions. And also, if there are breaking changes, which we will obviously have to tell our customers in advance, people might then have to go back and fix up older models for them to work with a newer version. Speak of versioning as well, um, back to earlier point in the conversation, it sounded like that you, you play very nicely in the sandbox with large legacy systems and you, you bring additional service or value and you get data from those. How hard is it to stay in lockstep with those systems, right? Because I, I know the upgrade process is 
fairly on, you know, can be fairly a long process for, for some of the larger legacy systems. And how tied are you to that? I mean, obviously you control your own APIs for the, for the, the Python we just described, but maybe a competitor who you're, you're augmenting their system may not be as friendly and, and you may not have as much visibility into their evolving roadmap. How, how dependent are you in that? Um, yeah, well, I think obviously, you know, if we have uh, a, a given customer of ours, which also happens to be a customer of another CGM vendor, it's up to them, obviously, typically if it's more legacy one where it's deployed on site perhaps and they have a you know long upgrade process, they would have to plan that out. And as part of that, you know, we would have an adapter which connects into that system to extract the information we need. And that would have to be taken into, consider- into consideration during the planning process. So, so far, um, you know, that has been, you know, we haven't had any sort of serious breaking changes, but, you know, obviously that could easily be the case and it would have to be taken into account, you know, as, as part of the planning process for any sort of system upgrade. In all that context, it's a very, I think, related question, but a bit different. Um, I mean, once client, um, clients start to deploy their own code or even if you do it for them, um, the question usually arises about the IP of the code, um, or let's put a let's put it in a very concrete example. Um, a client has a very specific uh, pricing model that is outperforming the market for a certain product, um, and he is deploying that pricing model. Where you do that for the client on the platform. So how does it work then in terms of IP? Are you are clients usually then requesting that the IP is with them so that Nobody else can reuse that functionality and you, you're also not allowed to resell it via license or is it sometimes even shared functionality or both? Well, so far for the models that we've implemented, uh, you know, they've been sort of mainly driven by us in terms of the design of the model, I would say. So, you know, right now there is no IP carve-outs. And I think that's mm-hmm. really something we're particularly keen on doing. Once you start carving up the IP of your code base, I think that causes you know, code management issues, which are hard to resolve. Yes. I mean, this is actually, but this is one of the reasons, of course, that we're, you know, we're developing this, uh, you know, Python-based uh, sort of sandboxing infrastructure is because if people really do want to own that IP and they really do want to keep that separate, then that's a nice way to do it. In terms of our code base, yeah, I think, uh, you know, once you start sort of carving off bits of the code base, it becomes very hard to, to manage the code on an ongoing basis. So that's not something we've done so far, nor do we intend to do it. Okay, understood. Okay, talking a bit about maybe automation, which is also a, an area that um, drives the market, I think, more than ever since a few weeks and months. And you mentioned already real time. Um, so do you, I mean, I understood that you're coming already from an area where real time or near real time was always very important for your solution. Um, but since the, let's say, the, the strong development in, in past months, have you planned to to uh, improve your solution in terms of automation, like automating workflows or becoming more um, automated in terms of data supply? So any area that that um, uh, gets impacted by the recent developments. Um, well, and as I say, for our system, you know, integration of the system and you know, feeding data in typically is uh, you know we do automate as part of any integration we might do. Um, in terms of new stuff we're planning on doing, we actually have some, uh, we've recently written some adapters for exchanges. And one thing we're looking at doing is, is writing some rules engines for those. So kind of, you know, automate allocation engines for putting them into certain places. Right now we have the adapters, but we just sort of pass them straight through as opposed to, you know, doing anything clever with the rules. So I think that's, 
not an area of automation. Um, but generally, the automation in terms of you know feeding data in is something which resides in our integration layer. So uh, that's extracting information from third-party systems and providing that reporting capability. Okay. And in the context of building adapters to exchanges, it sounds a bit like to me, but maybe I'm wrong, um, that you are uh, trying to automate and provide capabilities for order execution or order placement for clients. Is that correct? I'm, I'm talking about the drop copy feed. I mean, order management is something which is also on our roadmap, you know, looking at that in terms of how can we see that as part of a composite portfolio if I you know, want a stress test, for example. So we have a lot of tools around stress mm -hmm. testing, other sort of risk analysis. And you, know, you might want to see, you know, if, they, if you've got like a resting order book of limit orders, you might want to see how that behaves as, you know, as, as the market moves around as you stress test it, for example. So that's an area that we're, you know, is on our roadmap. Um, and also that, you know, and, and feeding orders to, uh, to um, you know, execution venues as well. But no, I was really talking about sort of drop copy feeds, you know, STP feeds, if you like, from existing exchanges where you've you know, executed orders and you get fills in and you want to get them flowing into your system and you want to have them allocated according to the rules. So that's okay. an area of automation we've been improving. So, so for the moment, more a focus on, on post-trade uh, um, capabilities. So once it has been executed on an exchange that the flow into the system is completely automized and having some data analytics on top, as understood. Yeah, so the, the flow is automated. I think we're looking at sort of allocation rules of like, you know, where you place things inside the system so you can allocate different books okay. or things like that. So I think, you know, you're asking about, you know, new, new areas of automation. I think that's one of them. I mean, they, they already get fed in as it is. And of course, you know, you're going to get your real-time risk view straight from the exchange, you know, currently. And the idea would be to improve automation around that. Okay. What I can see is a very strong demand in terms of, um, let's call it real-time application is, especially for gas and power trading, uh, a real-time position management tool so that any trader can see at any point in time his positions for different uh, markets um, and, of course, understand then short-term if he needs to uh, hedge in terms of um, yeah, um, volume to, to meet balancing requirements, for example. Um, yeah. Are you providing a real-time position management tool that is decoupled more or less from the risk management and P&L layer? Well, I think that well, the whole it's it's all integrated, right? So the whole system is kind of real-time risk, you know. So you know, in our, in our system, we, we don't have lots of different reports, you know, for you know different kind of concerns. What we try really hard to do is to build, you know, one report to rule them all, if you like, and. Uh, You know, the idea there is to have many different risk metrics and the ability to sort of slice dice across all the parameters in the system and even combine concerns. For example, you know, we have a fully versioned system, so we have, you know, um, a time machine effectively, so we can roll back and forwards time. So you might have some sort of you know, uh, reporting fields around that. You might have some stress tests, a PLA explain, some VAR, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is you can combine all of these onto one big report. Now, obviously, that's con constrained by computation, of course, but the idea is you could do it. You could build it. So all this stuff is, is you know, real time in that context, subject to competing constraints, of course. But so uh, there's nothing special about, you know, in our system about, you know, being Delta or Gamma or PNL or anything else, whether it's real time or not. You know, it's all it's all uh, handled by the same unified reporting framework. So you, you mentioned when we kicked off the call before we started recording that you just won some um, UX award. So how do you visualize all this and what, what, what makes you win an award? What's different about your UX than what's in the market? Uh, well, I think, you know, we've sort of uh, bucked the trend a little bit because we're actually not web-based, our UI currently. Um, we um, we went with JavaFX, 
Uh, it's sort of, you know, I mean, the, the client bootstraps, you know, from the cluster and updates itself regularly. Um, but it's a kind of, you know, you know, it's just client logic. Uh, it's just for, you know, doing UI, drag and drop, things like that. But it provides quite a nice experience. If you've got large data sets, big grids, you know, lots of stuff going on, and you want to be able to handle that, you know, it works quite nicely. Um, so, you know, we've made that sort of slick and modern and usable because we tried to make it, you know, as easy as possible to use. I mean, obviously, you know, risk management can be a complicated field in terms of all the various facets and calculation choices you can make, but we tried to simplify that and make it nice and easy to use in a sort of familiar interface and fast. So I think that's, you know, the kind of uh, one of the reasons we got that award, I I think, is probably because, you know, the, the sort of slickness and ease of use of the UI that we created. That's interesting. So it's counter the trend, though, to have done that the way you did it. Yeah, I, th- I think we probably, you know, if, if required, we probably would produce a web UI. Um, again, it's all API driven, so you know we can have uh, numerous APIs if necessary, right? But uh, sorry, UIs rather. Um, but uh, we went with that choice, uh, yeah, because I think um, you know we thought it was going to we were going to build a you know a more performance system for large you know data grids. I think actually, you know, web UIs have got better at that. Um, there's uh, you know. Uh, WebAssembly and things like that, you can get you know pretty large uh, views in, uh, these days. But um, at the time, it seemed like a good choice. And also, the Java guys finally got their act together and produced uh, the JavaFX framework, which is uh, better than previous uh, attempts. Let's put it that way. Okay, um, maybe a bit of a shift again in topic, but uh, I can imagine that performance might be also a big topic, an interesting uh, one for your clients uh, to make sure that, especially when you have uh, computationally intense risk management and pricing models that they don't need to wait hours for results. So scalability in terms of performance might be a key area uh, for you um, to fit customer needs. So how, how do you um, tackle that uh, area? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That has been one, one of the key areas of, you know, of developing the platform is to how to ensure, you know, kind of a consistent, fast response and how to, you know, fully leverage a distributed computing environment to get maximum performance out of it. So what we've done is we've built, you know, Scala JVM-based system. Um, we're using ACA, you know, ACA clustering and ACA actors, things like that to, for concurrency management. Um, you know, we have a sort of event store-driven backend we're using ACA persistence. And, you know, we distribute our workloads around a Kubernetes cluster. We have a couple of node types mainly, you know, seed nodes and compute nodes. And you can fan these out across pretty big clusters and distribute workloads across them, you know, uh, end users talk to, you know, there's the seed nodes that gets found out across the cluster when, you know, work is produced as part of, say, a report request, something like that. But the idea being that, you know, you can have these very large workloads and you can, you know, divide and conquer and, and split them up over the cluster and, you know, get good performance out. And also it's JVM, so it's, you know, it gets jitted, it's sort of native performance um, and, you know, it, it generally works, you know, works pretty well and we can, you know, paralyze it very effectively. Okay, and uh, you mentioned back then that often it's the case that the client is deploying the solution on on, on um, the client's cloud. So I guess um, in terms of performance, it's also important to scale uh, the the performance of the cloud that um, comes with it. So uh, can you see that that this is sometimes a bottleneck for clients once they have it on their own cloud environment? and they're not fully managing the, the performance well there. So is that an issue? Well, I think that's, you know, that, that becomes their choice, you know. So, I mean, they're running a cloud, they have a cluster, and, um, you know, it's up to them, obviously, what computational resources, you know, they uh, you know they decide to use in that cluster. I think, obviously, they have their own data, they have their own sovereignty, you know, so, um, you know, and they can choose 
what the computational um, you know, requirements they have to you know, handle the workloads they're interested in. So, I mean, obviously the great thing with the cloud cluster is, you know, you can very easily kind of spin it up and spin it down and change the size, you know, very rapidly without having to deploy, you know, metal. So I think that's, um, you know, a great benefit and uh, is very straightforward, actually. I mean, increasing nodes in Kube's clusters on, on most of these platforms is, is trivial. So that's very easy to kind of scale up and down. Yeah, okay, I understand. In terms of automation, um, I mean, a topic that is linked to it, a very specific area of automation, uh, algorithmic trading. Um, I understood before that you are now looking into um, providing capabilities for pre-trade uh, D-Live or uh, status. So um, order placement is probably some, some, some area of capabilities to develop. But um, how do you see more from a business point of view algorithmic trading in the assets that uh, your clients are active? I think it was mainly gas, power, uh, oil, but probably others as well, metals. And um, how do you react towards that potential increase of algorithmic uh, trading demands, which I would assume in some assets? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely more demand out there for sort of trading around, uh, you know, assets algorithmically, particularly, for example, in power, short-term power, things like that. Um, I think, you know, from a company point, that's not really a space that we're planning on doing a lot of work in. I think there's a lot of sort of solutions out there which very specifically kind of focus on that particular area. So I don't think uh, that's an area we'll be looking at soon. But in terms of handling that information from a reporting point of view, absolutely. So, yeah, there will be increased amount of trades executed, increased fills that we have to deal with. And I think, you know, we're well-placed. To, to handle that, I think that uh, you know our architecture is, is you know is going to be able to handle that kind of workload reasonably, reasonably easily. Um, but uh, you know certainly from an execution point of view, and uh, you know that I was talking about earlier from order management, I wasn't really referring to you know, algorithmic execution there, mainly sort of handling traders who are sort of executing an order book. But certainly, if you know were filled by, and if we were have, we did have visibility on algorithmic orders and indeed the fills that came out, then I think we ought to handle those. Okay, so you would typically connect to a vendor and in-house solution built by clients that um, manages um, algorithmic trading, so building strategies, backtesting them and executing them, but you would more take, for example, over the part of reporting and data analytics potentially. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, we'd be more at sort of post-trade type analysis and uh, reporting you know, after the fact. And possibly in the future, looking at sort of, you know, the order book, if there are if yeah. such things existing. Okay. So I think it makes sense for us to switch gears and go into our speed round and go ahead into the 10 questions. The way this section works is we have 10 questions. We've asked every vendor that's been on the, uh, the ETRM mini series, and we just round robin between Martin and myself. I will go ahead and kick off with the first question. And just short answers of what we're looking for. One or two sentences, just, you know, what you think. Now it's time for the ETRM miniseries speed round. Um, my first question is, will the number of ETRM vendors or solutions shrink or expand in the future, in your opinion? Um, I think it will probably expand, and I think that's because markets are becoming more automated, and also technical platforms are becoming, uh, you know, making it easy to build systems in the first place. Okay, then second question: How many deals per minute 
must a modern ETM system today be capable to import? Well, I guess that depends on what kind of market they're in and the sort of speed of execution, but let's say somewhere around 10,000. Okay. All right. So what commodity types and energy types are you offering and which ones are your greatest strengths? Uh, well, we're across quantity systems. So, you know, for derivatives and uh, some physical, we have support for oil, metals, gas, power, LNG, ags, freight, things like that. I think our strengths are in oil, metals and gas and power. That's where we've done most of our focus and have sort of additional features for derivatives which are common in that area and other sort of physical optionality. Okay, great. The next question, do you offer a real-time position management module and um, how many trades can it process? I think the underlying question is, is it event-driven? Uh, yes, we do. In fact, that's the core of our system. And um, mm-hmm. yes, it's event-driven, absolutely. And uh, how many trades can it handle? It's more about how many kind of unique positions can it handle. I mean, you could potentially have millions of trades and you know, they get rolled up and uh, netted. So it's about unique positions, but in theory, millions, depending on the structures. So do you have an automated workflow for straight-through processing? Uh, we have adapters for CME and ICE currently, and we have a very simple kind of uh, Topaz Connect integration engine, which people can build on. Um, and uh, we're looking to build a sort of more sophisticated rules-based engine um, to support kind of you know, more complex allocations. Okay. Then next one. Can your solution price Asian power options? Uh, we do have support for Asian options. Um, you know, we have a bunch of uh, closed form solutions as well, and also uh, some uh, simulation models. And in the future, as we discussed, you know, we'll be able to plug in your own um, implementations as well. Okay. All right. Are you offering a full integration and implementation service with your solution? Uh, yeah, we do offer full implementation integration services. Uh, we've also got a couple of partnerships with, uh, with Roy T and CMAS, so you can assist with integrations as well. Okay, so what do you think as a as a vendor in that uh, sense? Where do you see the biggest threats and challenges for your business model and your solutions? Um, well, I think uh, you know the biggest challenge always to sort of third party vendors is kind of uh, when you're competing with internal systems and you know the costs of uh, integration associated with that. I think what we're looking at is trying to you know make that an easier to make and certainly more simple than ripping out an entire internal system and integrating with internal systems which uh, you know uh, pre-exist is something we're, we're also quite good at. Okay. So what is your current licensing model like and do you anticipate it changing in the future? Um, currently our licensing model is uh, per user per month on a subscription basis um, so no upfront costs and uh, in the future, I think any change we might make is to sort of change the modernization of, you know, uh, how that breaks down in terms of subscription components. Okay, then last question. Are you or your solution, is it offering API, so standard API technology, and what is the technology behind it? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, in fact, we have a couple of uh, technologies we use. Um, uh Open API, so you know REST JSON, and uh, also gRPC. So you know if you're some tools are going to require, say, Open API if they want nice looking JSON on the wire, um, but generally we prefer to use gRPC where possible. And we do code gen and things like that. Well, awesome! You've gotten through the speed round. Uh, thank you for 
giving us all the answers, giving us a little bit different perspective. Um, what I like to do at this point of the program is I like to give you just a short time to reach out to the audience and tell them why they might want to contact Topaz. Who, who's your ideal person to contact you and why, why talk to you? Well, I think, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a company who's looking for you know, real-time cross-commodity uh, risk solution, you want to be able to slice and dice your risk, uh, you know, value more interesting derivatives and uh, exotics, and you know, perhaps you have an in-house system that you want to augment, uh, then we could be the solution for you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the ETRM mini-series. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. This concludes this episode of the ETRM mini-series. Please listen to all the episodes. Compare and contrast. Go to the website. You'll find information there. And we look forward to talking to you again on another episode. Goodbye.